Today's podcast is sponsored by RadRx, your source for quality online education for interventional and diagnostic radiology coding, taught by subject matter expert Stacy Buck. For more information and testimonials, visit RadRx.com. Struggling to learn interventional radiology coding? If so, RadRx has the perfect solution for you. Cracking the IR Code, Mastering Interventional Radiology and Cardiology Online Training Program. In this program, interventional radiology coding expert Stacy Buck breaks down the complexities of interventional radiology coding in easy-to-understand terms so you can grasp this complex specialty. Through her course, Stacy has assisted many coders with little or no interventional radiology coding experience in successfully passing the CERC exam on the first attempt. For additional information and testimonials, visit radrx.com. Welcome to Who Cares What Stacy Says, a podcast providing insights and advice on how to take your medical coding career to the next level. And now, here's your host, Stacy Buck. Welcome to another episode of Who Cares What Stacy Says. I am your host, Stacy Buck. In today's episode, Creating Your Own Path, you will hear the first part of a five-hour interview. Yes, you heard that right. An almost five-hour interview with one of my favorite people in the health information management profession, Mario Perez. During my time in the HIM profession, Mario has been a great friend and mentor to me, as he has to so many others in our industry. Mario has over 35 years of experience working in the HIM profession, providing administrative oversight of implementation and management for clinical documentation integrity programs with a focus on health informatics, clinical, quality, and fiscal analytic outcomes, ensuring operational efficiency, clinical documentation improvement strategies, and coding regulatory compliance within healthcare enterprises. He is active in AHIMA, FHIMA, and also the South Florida Health Information Management Association, serving in numerous leader, leadership roles over the years, and as an industry expert, he is a sought-after public speaker. Mario is certainly one of the crowd favorites here in his home state of Florida and all over the country. I personally consider Mario to be a pioneer and a trailblazer in the world of clinical documentation improvement. During his esteemed career, he has done so much to elevate the profile of HIM professionals in the CDI world. During our interview, we discussed several topics, including how artificial intelligence is transforming the world of clinical documentation improvement, and we also discussed the implementation of ICD-11. These portions of our interview will be shared in the coming weeks. You definitely don't want to miss them. In part one of our interview, Mario shares his journey of how he forged his own pathway, creating opportunities for himself in the ever-evolving field of HIM. It is my hope that as you listen to his journey, you become excited about all the possibilities that are available in the HIM and coding profession, and you get inspired to create your own unique path. And now here is part one of my interview with Mario Perez. Welcome everyone to another episode of Who Cares What Stacy Says. I'm your host, Stacy Buck. Today I have the Mario Perez with me for this interview. And for those of us who live in Florida, Mario has always been known as El Presidente. <laughs> That's his nickname that he's affectionately known as. And we'll talk a little bit about why he got that name a little bit later in the podcast. But I'm so happy to have Mario with me on my podcast. Mario, we have known each other for 25 years. I, I can't believe it has been that long. I remember I first met you when I was a student at Florida International University back in the 90s, and I joined the South Florida Health Information Management Association, and that's how I met you. And I can remember all the fun parties that they had and um, you know how nice you were and gracious you were back then. You were always very welcoming to newer professionals. And you still are. I still admire that about you, that you try to draw them in, you make them feel welcome, um, ask them questions about themselves. And, and that's just a great personality trait that, that you've always had. 
and I so have enjoyed. So can you believe it's been that long? I mean, wow. I was a young thing when you met me. <laughs> yes, yeah, so very young. So now you've made me feel a little bit uh, senior than I want to be, but you're absolutely <laughs> right. Uh, Stacy. thank you so much. I appreciate the fact that you invited me to your uh, podcast here and uh, be able to um, spend some time with you and your distinguished audience members uh, as we go through this podcast uh, this morning. And yes, it's been quite um, an HIM ride journey. And it's, mm-hmm. that's what it's all about. There's not never a destination. You continue on your journey. And hopefully throughout this podcast, we'll be able to look to see what my journeys are, share experiences, and, um, and forecasting um, as well with regards to what happens to us within the HIM field. And as well as we perhaps may uh, prepare ourselves within this journey as well. So I thank you so much for the... Uh, the time here. And yes, it's been 25 years since I've known you and um, I've seen your career path as well. So it's interesting how we perhaps can share some of that as we talk today, uh, because I've seen you come from student to entrepreneur, business owner, uh, a leader within the association. So a testimony that I believe that you said that when you met me about, you know, giving back and I firmly believe in that and that. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that obviously looking at people, the younger generations, um, stepping in those shoes. And, um, and I think uh, the investment um, obviously paid off. So you're a very, very hot commodity. What can I say? Well, that's very kind of you. And I mean, I owe a lot of my success to a lot of great mentors that I've had in the profession. I consider you one of my mentors. You you have always given me great advice professionally, and I appreciate that. Another person, you know, Perry Ellie, who you also know well, he also has been one of my big cheerleaders and provided a lot of great advice. And there's just a lot of, you know, people out there. You know, when I think about those early days, I remember, you know, thinking of some fun memories before we get into our serious subject matter, the um, convention being at the Fountain Blue in Miami when FHIMA was there. Were you you president that year? Was that your year? No, as a matter of fact, that year, that was back in- Diane's year. Yeah, it was- Diane Evangelista? No, Diane Ralston. No, that was way back when. And, um, yep. And that was, I was basically, um, um, spearheading the arrangements committee, uh, with Ah, Hispanic who, um, is also one of our HIM, um, icons here with Diane Evangelista. And it's funny that we're having this podcast today because tomorrow, guess who I'm having lunch with, with Linda and Diane, we're going to have, we're going to catch up. We were trying to catch up back in January, but the Omicron virus came about. So we were all sort of, maybe we should wait, you know, Um, we've survived this long. So tomorrow I'm very excited and we're going to catch up on that. So as you can see, knowing these ladies that I know for over 30 some odd years, we still have those ties uh, and more so that we've had them from a professional perspective, but then also a personal friendship as well. So, uh, yeah. yeah, the Fontainebleau, that was brought very dear memories because um, it, it was a very exciting time. It was uh, in Miami. It was one of the mm-hmm. first times that um, uh, FHIMA had it there. So it was really good because it was really partying. It was before even South Beach became South Beach. I think we inaugurated mm-hmm. South Beach. <laughs> <laughs> I remember from that convention the party at the Eden Rock that we had over there yep. with, the dan- with the dancing. With the dancing. Yeah. So those so those of you who don't know Mario, he is an amazing dancer. He is always out on the dance floor. He's oh, got yeah. those Latin dance moves going on all the time. <laughs> yeah, except there's a problem now, Stacy, with that is I still like to dance. I like to hear the music, but when I do that and I overdo it, it takes me about three days to recuperate. <laughs> 
re- I can relate to that to a certain degree because I was one to go out dancing when I was younger. And now when I do it or even like someone's for exercise, oh, let me do a dance workout. I can't quite do what yeah. I used to 20 years ago. I'm like, oh, my hip. I can't move this way because of my hip. Yeah, <laughs> but it's, it's definitely still fun. I remember like side story here. Jan Marat's mom would come yep. to some of the parties and I think she was in her 90s and still yes. like 80s. 90s and dancing with us at the parties and she was so active and she was such a fun lady so yeah south florida him association had the best parties the best social events like always so even though i lived in palm beach i was a member down south and went to all their meetings and all their social events so that's where i first met um you know mario all those years ago so mario i wanted to bring you on to talk to my audience because you have such a long career in HIM and I believe you had a lot, have a lot of valuable knowledge to share with the audience, but in particular, you've spent a lot of your time working in clinical documentation improvement. And that's something that I haven't really talked about on the podcast yet. So we will get into some specifics with CDI, but before we get into that, would you mind sharing a little bit about your career path in, in the HIM profession? What drew you to the HIM profession? Did you and you know plan on going into it, or were you like many of us that, oh hey, this is this is a real thing, and I you kind of just fell into it? So many people are like, oops, here I am, I'm in HIM. Yeah, well, it, it's interesting how things pan out in life. You know, sometimes you're on a journey, on a, like a train, and then you get off at the train station, you meet somebody and says, you know what, I'm going to continue the journey with you and get off on a different path. So it's interesting. You know, when I when I saw when your question about my path uh, and, and I put in the spectrum nowadays, I, I put them from a, a paper based um, HIM world with walls to artificial intelligence without walls is where we're at mm-hmm. now. Try right. to fill that gap. And it's almost what we're talking about, 30, almost 40 years. Right. So the pathway, when I was basically a young buck in my 20s, I was already working in a hospital, but I was working in the finance division in the accounting department, uh, doing Medicare cost reports, making sure that the ledgers were correct. Um, At that time, everything was basically paper-based. And so um, there was, you know, no computers um, at that time. Uh, you would submit your paper billing to Medicare on a manila folder. I'd take it to the post office, the post office, <laughs> and you would wait a check and all of that. And then what happened was in the 80s, we had some a young person come in and, you know, a much younger person, the other, the other person retired. And, and mind you, my first job was at South Shore Hospital, which no longer exists. Now they tore it down and they built a luxury condo in South Beach. And it was a geriatric hospital. So it's all Medicare based. And so um, I was working there and um, I did all of that. And then what I was responsible for was basically um, the person that retired. So everything was paperwork. And I said, my God, I went to a Blue Cross and Blue Shield seminar and they were talking about, about electronic billing. And I go, wow, this is interesting. So I said, yeah, I'll sign up for it without getting authorization. You know me, Stacey. Uh, you know, yes. I'll do now and then ask for forgiveness later. This, this would be <laughs> great to do this via all electronically. And I'd have to submit all of this. We used to type things on the, I remember putting in codes. And I didn't know what those I, um, I-9 codes were for diagnoses and things like that. Not that it really mattered because the DRG system wasn't even in place. This was right. the 80s, right? So anyway, make a long story short, um, I said, okay. And I says, well, how do I get this uh, monitor, this billing system that it's electronic? And um, they said, okay, well, we have the box. And since you are Blue Cross and Blue Shield provider, we'll give it to you. So I went to the warehouse, got the, the, the machine, and I put it in my 1978 uh, Grand Dam Pontiac uh, Firebird, <laughs> went down to South Shore Hospital, and I said, let's install it. Everybody was apprehensive, so I installed it. And I installed it, and then we started to submit everything. You still had to type in all the information, but it was supposed to be electronic, and then Medicare would send you an electronic check at that time. And people were going, what? We're not going to get it in the mail? Imagine that. 
Right. Right. Now you talk about nowadays we have Zelle and all of this electronic transfer. Pretty soon there's not going to be any cash. So anyway, that's what we started doing. Well, one week, two weeks, and we weren't getting any money in. Cash flow was going. That's it. This is the end of my career in the healthcare field. <laughs> Finally, it started trickling in and things like that. So that was the start of basically, and this was 1982. Imagine that. And then during that time, I got, you know, I, things were working out. I became in charge of the, you know, that billing department. Everything was very um, on hands. As a matter of fact, then I started getting involved with medical records a lot more because some of the uh, codes that I understand or the edit now because of the computer weren't going through. And I started talking and they started talking about, the, oh, my God, their life is going to change. We're going to have so many people quit because of DRG. Right. And I says, what's that? I says, well, the government, so I started getting more into it going. Now, I already had a degree in finance and I says, wow, this is really interesting. So talking to somebody in another department, I said, well, that's interesting. So basically I um, went back to, uh, I started diving into it. The medical records director told me, well, there's a program at Miami-Dade Community College. So I went and sat and I went for it and I did the part-time night thing at the ART, a credit record technician, what it was at that time. And mm-hmm. I thoroughly enjoyed it. That, Stacy, was a pivotal point in my life about knowing about how that was going to impact and saw and sawing what the impact to that was from the HI. And I always liked the clinical aspects of healthcare without mm-hmm. actually getting into the bedside. And this really, so I went through the course and um, I enjoyed it. And, you know, I sat for the ART at that time and my career basically blossomed within the hospital as well. Cause then I was able to understand when DRGs came about having the finance background, the business office background basically took me to that. And what I saw there, it was a learning experience because it was really new for the industry. It created a lot of, uh, uh, you know, um, checks. There was not a whole lot of checks and balances. Then you got involved with the peer review organizations, a lot of them about the audits as well. And so there was a lot of opportunity. Coding clinics were basically non-existent until they started back in 1984. I remember the first issue that was coming out because there was a lot of questions. People didn't know. There was a lot of um, uncertainty and obviously a lot of opportunity for either committing errors or committing fraud and abuse. So Medicare started, you know, really looking at this um, prospective payment system. And what you learn from that is what? Because at that time, I remember I would submit a bill to Medicare for $80,000 inpatient. Medicare paid the hospital $80,000. And so Medicare funds and and the whole history of why we went to prospective payment system is because there was a lot of front of these overcharges, undercharges and things like that. And so once again, is that it got me into a field of not only of knowing about some of the electronics, things that were going on in healthcare for billing, but also being able to now move and pivot into another field, but also looking, and I started to think ahead, this is involving not only with financial, by finances, but it's also going to impact on patient healthcare compliance, which then 10 years later became uh, a pivot yes. because 10 years later after DRG, what happened was what people were gaming the system. Mm-hmm. And at that time I was a coding machine. What was I doing? I was now being director of a, that of a facility of, uh, of at, at, um, the business office. I moved on to HIM. I started then looking at coding in different areas of uh, the of, of the county. So that time you would look at the Miami Herald and they were looking for a coding job. There was no, you know, monster.com or Indeed or all these resumes. And so I wanted to learn more because I was working in a very limited area. So I want to know all there was about the coding and it was a great opportunity. 
because a lot of people didn't know what the heck they were doing anyway, because there was you know, <laughs> everything. And so it was a learning experience. So you, it really was through learning, through trial and error at that time, which helped me, to, which helped me in a lot of instances to learn different perspectives. Throwing myself out there as well, I began to learn a lot about other facilities, dynamics, getting to know people in the industry, getting to know people who are already in HIM. And that's how I started learning about South Florida Health Information Management Association and then getting involved. And what it turned out to be, without me knowing it was going to happen, was that I was developing my own little coding business. And so before you knew it, I was coding all over Dade County. And then I started getting calls all over state of Florida. Mm -hmm. So one of the things is learning that. And that happened during that 10-year period of learning, that pathway, which was a great learning experience, a great way to save money, a great way to get to know yourself, a great way to invest. And then looking at what was happening, one of the things in this world about is that a career pathway is that sometimes you got to carve out your own pathway and you got to look yes. to the future. And so one of the things that I noticed was, wait a minute, there's a lot of audits going on. A lot of these companies now are trying to either, at that time, you would have companies come in and says, hey, by the way, hospital X, Y, and Z. We can uh, work for you in a contingency basis. If we find stuff for you, we can split the profits, you know? Mm -hmm. And that was allowable, which is not now, because created areas of inconsistencies and opportunity for fraud and abuse. So take that history of all of what I did, and I worked in different hospitals. I worked in academic centers, community centers, outreach centers, clinics, and so forth. I really wanted to get a feel for it. What I was doing is preparing myself because I wanted to eventually be a consultant. And that didn't happen until 1998 when it was ripe. And what I mean by ripe was is now the office of inspector general started saying, you know what? There has to be compliance within this state of the organization about what coding is and the reimbursement, right? Because now, Mm -hmm. yeah, they were losing money before because people were padding the bills before the DRGs, but now people were what? Padding the I-9 codes to get the optimal DRG or the incorrect DRG based on the principal diagnosis. So it created a world of opportunity for that. And so I sidestepped on that and then I started working for a firm and I was responsible from the HIM perspective to assess HIM departments, assess coding, and help develop compliance programs for hospitals that are unfortunately fell under corporate integrity agreement. And I also started doing then independent reviews for the Office of Inspector General as part Mm -hmm. of the corporate integrity agreement that hospitals were under. So mind you, it was a, a world of opportunity to learn with all about that. As luck would have it, or as fate would have it, Stacey, sometimes, like I said, you carve your own pathway, but some lifetimes, life throws your curveball and says, uh-oh, now the pathway that you carved, the bridge fell, and there's a cliff. What do you do? Yes. Well, <laughs> yes. That, cliff, that cliff for me on my HIM pathway was in December of 2002, mind you. You know, I got a great memory for dates when the company that I was working for said, you know what? We sold our HIM division. We're no longer going to do that. We're going to concentrate on software. And I says, oh, okay, interesting. You're not going to concentrate anymore on consulting services. This was already, what, 2002. So I kept that feather in my cap about software. But anyway, I still needed to work and I still love consulting. And then that's how I started, you know, and it, it was interesting um, about put my feelers out thinking, well, maybe there's more auditing new DRGs to do. <clears throat> but um, I um, got the opportunity to go to Atlanta and where there was this firm that was headed by doctors and nurses that were looking for an HIM representative for their division of compliant documentation for their program. And I said, this is interesting. This is a clinically based company. I wonder what they're doing with DRGs. Um, I says, you know what? 
oh, God, they'll pay for the hotel, the trip and everything. And I've never been to Atlanta. So I says, it'll be a nice trip. Long, long story short, that was 2003. Jay Thomas, really the um, almost the founders of clinical documentation improvement. And yes. the rest was you, you were was, doing. You were doing CDI before CDI was cool. That's what I like to think. <laughs> absolutely. At that time, and mind you, it was all paper-based. And the idea was that this firm would basically said there was a gap between the clinical language and the coding language because mm -hmm. the DRG system is based on codes and you don't get the clinical language interpretation to the right outcomes on the codes. You're not going to get your full doable um, reimbursement. And so, yes, that was, uh, I basically joined them and they joined that firm uh, and they, um, and I developed the HIM division and that was back in 2003. And, um, and, and it was interesting how that had transpired. I always kept my feelers in the HIM world, but still now I learned another clinical aspects of the, um, of HIM that I really, uh, did not know. And it was a good learning opportunity, not only for myself, but for them to understand about the regulatory perspective of healthcare, but also the clinical. So it gave me another skill set to really, um, look at implementing these programs. And all of that time, we didn't even have a software for CDI. It was very basic, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it was a very compliant program in regards to that. So having that um, skill set from the business office regulatory and then adding to that, that pathway created me an opportunity to really explore the opportunities of clinical documentation and dealing with, um, uh, with the world of healthcare from a clinical perspective. And, and that clinical perspective gave me a really good opportunity to really enhance my skill set in that perspective as well. Um, and, and so that pathway was just great. I got to consult. I was already consulting from um, the previous company from a compliance perspective all over the country. This gave me more opportunity to really now look and be at the seat of clinical documentation within the hospitals. So mm -hmm. I in, that, in, all, in all of that career, uh, this company really gave me that foundation and it was a great opportunity. And then another car curveball happened. The curveball was in um, uh, 2012 when the company decided, you know what? We've grown and we've grown and we've grown. But remember what I told you, my feather in my cap about, you know, how my other company back in the 90s decided to, in 2002, develop concern themselves only with software technology, right? Mm -hmm. Well, Jay Thomas in 2012 finally realized, you know what? We've milked this cow dry. Mm -hmm. We are not going to be able to compete in the CDI industry because we didn't have the technology. We had a really cool software. It was all basically what I would say access-based, but we didn't have the resources. So we were acquired by Nuance. Fast forward, Nuance really took us on a big trip to really coordinate computer-assisted coding, CDI. In that career from 2012 to 20, now to basically last year, 2021, you took that whole career. What happened there was that now all of this was becoming to be more automated. So now mm -hmm. we're talking about putting in the clinical architecture of CDI, of what the nurses or coders were doing, and now putting them into what? Artificial intelligence. Gave me the opportunity to do that. And then is where we're at now with this artificial intelligence, which now has moved CDI to the forefront within the electronic health record. So you're talking about this artificial intelligence, natural language processing, that has transpired in CDI and continues to do so. And that what has taken all the way from that little computer on my firebird, you know, that I had in my trunk of the car to artificial intelligence and understanding the dynamics of improving documentation has been really a pathway that I believe I carved it out sometimes on purpose 
And mm-hmm. then sometimes it wasn't there for me and you had to make a decision as moving forward. And I will tell you, Stacey, now that I've gone into um, uh, uh, this sort of hiatus in my career, because unbeknownst to a lot of people, um, I decided to, um, in this career path, almost after 40 years, that, you know what, I wanted to take take a step back. And what was the pathway? Well, the pathway was that the pandemic changed a lot of people's lives. And that was that now my career, basically where I was the big jet setter traveling Mm -hmm. all over, Mm -hmm. um, I have accumulated over 3 million flying miles in my career. Wow. You know, Um, great benefits uh, about doing that. Traveled the world, traveled overseas for uh, work as well and things like that. And now the, the, the things have changed and it was really an interesting pathway. So everything that I was doing, training, assessing, managing, all became through Zoom, through, uh, uh, through, through these interactions. And that was great. And that was great. It really was. It was a great opportunity, but it's not great for everybody, you know? And what right. I say by that is that with technology, you lose that type of sociability. And that was for me. I mean, that was my effect of what I had. But there was another thing happening about the pathway. Well, already there was talk within Nuance. And it's interesting that we're having this podcast this morning because just last Friday, it was officially deal that Nuance has finally been acquired by Microsoft. Yes, that's been talked about for a while. Yes, it was, but it was not com- uh, official mm-hmm. until this last Friday because there was a lot of uh, regulations, not only in the United States, but also globally as well. Right. So you figure, well, when I was involved with Nuance, the talk was why getting involved with Microsoft? Same thing that happened with what? Jay Thomas. The technology that is exponentially growing within the HIM business is that Nuance needs other bigger entities. Now you have a lot of people, uh, private entities, entrepreneurs joining healthcare. We're talking about not only Microsoft, you're talking about Google, Apple, Many people are already involved in the accumulation of this wealth of data, which is health information. And what do we do with this data? So you begin to think, well, what's going on? And now, as I think we're going to be talking a little bit of I-11, that's going to be a pivotal point of why that foresight of moving to more technology resources of what I-11 is going to be doing in the future for HIM from a healthcare perspective, but also what's going to happen for those upcoming HIM professional. And I will love to share with you eventually when we get to that topic, Mm -hmm. how that's going to pivot. And you're going to have to create that pathway because the pathway already has already been created for you what do you do to prepare yourself for that pathway with this new coding structure that already has been implemented internationally in some countries already? So that pathway, as you can share that experience, is putting yourself in situations where you're working, but you're always putting your feelers out and what's going to be the impact to the industry? What do I need to prepare myself for and be able to learn from that perspective? I think the pandemic forced us to learn many other options, just like it forced my parents, which now I have sort of a part-time job raising parents. Um, They're in their mid eighties. And, um, they said, what do you mean telehealth? What's what's that? <laughs> right. It says, there's a pandemic going on. The doctor wants to see you. Well, my mother had woken up early in the morning to bake a pie to take to the doctor. And I says, you better put that pie back and we're going to eat it. 
later on because you're not going to the doctors. Well, <laughs> they were like, what, what is this? So I put on the computer and they had their telehealth visit. Telehealth visits before the pandemic were like, what, one digit percentages, 10% maybe, yeah. or 8%. Mm-hmm. And it skyrocketed. Now my mother has, my parents love it. They don't have to get dressed. They don't have to do, you know, right. they, they can do it and uh, on that as long as it's, it's non-emergent. So we've all had to, we've had to adapt. So I know that pathway, but you said, what was the pathway? My pathway, you know, that's almost giving you a lifetime of the initiation of what I've been fortunate enough to experience before DRGs. We were just out of I-8 to I-9. And now Mm -hmm. here we are already in 2022 as pretty soon, you know, I'll be a recipient of Medicare (laughs) <laughs> and who knows? Hopefully, I'll get coded correctly in I eleven in the in the in the near future. <laughs> Although we'll talk about some dates for I eleven, but you know, I would tell your speakers out there, oh my God, should I start sending? Well, start looking to see what's going on. But uh, the transition for I eleven is going to take a while here. So anyway, so that's my career path. I apologize for being so verbose, but I, I think it's a good pathway so people understand that sometimes the pathways you direct, what mm-hmm. I did is, well, let me make sure that I, um, for my pathway, that sometimes you take, it's like I did. I was in the business office. I says, huh, DRGs, let me go get some study on that. Right. So I created that pathway. But then once you get into that, and I've, I've never would have created that pathway myself nothing else would have happened in the future, right? So as you get into the pathway, you know, in your trip, it's like going on vacation. Yeah, you take the tour, but maybe the tour gets detailed, uh, detoured somewhere else or something happens, right? So right. that's been my uh, my my uh, little pathway there with health information management. Yeah, you've had a very interesting, you know, career path. And, you know, I came into healthcare in 1992. So I came into it a little bit later, you know, than you did, but I am like, I'm in awe of all of the changes, particularly with technology since I've been in it. Because when I started in 1992, everything for the most part was manual. We did have electronic billing, but everything else was pretty much a manual process still in 1992 with HIM. And listening to you talk about different things in your path, it reminded me of things um, from years ago in, in my path and how manual we were. I can remember my second job I had in HIM sitting and typing master patient index cards on an electric <laughs> typewriter. You know, that's what I had to do. And oh, yeah. it was it was several years working there until we actually had that process automated. And then you had your electronic MPI with patient registration, but it was manual. Um, even that was, when did I start that job? That would have been in 90... Three, I made that switch. And so for the first couple of years, we were still doing a manual process. And you mentioned the credentials. So I have an audience of varying ages. So you mentioned the ART. So for the youngsters in the audience who are not familiar with the ART, the RHIT used to be the ART back in the day. And the RHIA used to be the RRA. So when I came into the field, I got credentialed in 1998. I was an RRA Yep. in 1998. And then I think it was like two years later, AHIMA made the change over to the RHIT and RHIA to better reflect the profession because accredited records technician, ART and registered record administrator did not accurately describe what was going on. The degree had also been medical record administration, Absolutely. medical record, you know, technician, you know, that kind of thing. And it really had so little to do with how the profession had even evolved to that point in time. I mean, back in the day, medical record librarians, that was the title, the the original job title for people who, you know, did medical records. And so that's kind of interesting to reflect. I'd forgotten about being an RRA until you said that. I'm like, yeah, when I came in, I was, I was an RRA. Yes. And that's a very good point that you mentioned because you talked about the pathway from a personal level but also your pathway is directed by associations and by, and sometimes that pathway is directed to what's going on in the healthcare industry. Mm -hmm. The American Medical Record Association at that time had to rebrand itself as well as to what was happening. Not only that, they saw a deficit within the population of their members as well. 
So what they did is during the 90s, they opened up a proviso, meaning that any RHIT person who had a bachelor's degree would be able to sit for the R uh, for the RHIA um, if they had a certain amount of experience. So I says, oh my gosh, not that I needed it, but I says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do it because I'm involved within the organization. Um, I was a little bit apprehensive, but it was interesting how experience, I mean, the hour, the test was like about four hours. You had to go to a site and do it. Um, mm-hmm. at that time it was a computer was bubbling it in and, yeah. uh, and I finished it in about an hour and a half, you know, I says, well, Either I'm too confident or I just blew that. <laughs> and so I sat for that. And then that's how I got the provisor through the RHIA. Um, and then you're absolutely right. The American Health Information Management Association had a change. There was a lot of changes going on also with reflecting what's going on in the healthcare business because of why? Because the uh, technology advances, HIT okay. was... Um, supposedly usurping those uh, skill sets. So we wanted, but what has happened, Stacey, and I believe as we move forward that the the skill set of health information technology and health information management of sort of nebulous, they, there's not a fine line. And so people really have to look at what they are going to be doing with their careers in this field as well. Mm-hmm. We talk about credentialing. We talk about many of the... Um, aspects of CDI, you know, where also there's competition. When ACTUS came about, a great association for the Association of Clinical um, Improvement Documentation, Integrity Documentation, um, AHIMA came out also with a credential as well. And so, which is great to have this diversity as well within these organizations. So some, so many times in creating pathways, you have to look at what these organizations are doing. And that's why becoming members of these associations is so important because it puts you in, par, in, in more knowledge. And hopefully, if you're not happy with what's going on, working yourself to a position of leadership so that you yourself can enact change. And that's how I became involved because I was a big mouth all the time. This and people said, <laughs> you and you and me both. <laughs> you know, why don't you join up? And I, I says, you know, you're absolutely right. I never thought I never had the aspiration to, oh, I want to be present. That's my goal. It just happened that the pathway followed through and mm-hmm. giving back. Right. And sort of having that and developing those uh, um, relationships. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk a little bit about that. I kind of had an, an outline that I wanted to follow, but since we kind of pivoted a little bit, let's get into the professional association discussion that um, I wanted to have there. So you definitely, you know, that's how I came to know you through the regional association. And then at the state level, I remember when you were on the FHIMA board, I was actually a committee chair um, that year. And I had started to work, you know, my way up there. And you have always been known as being very outspoken. I have always been known as being very outspoken. Um, some people love and appreciate that. Other people do not <laughs> love and appreciate that. Um, but what, you know, what was, what was the main thing that prompted you to get involved? Like what made you say, I need to step up to a higher, you know, level? Obviously we've come through the regional association, but what made you take that leap to the state level? Why did you choose that path at the time that you did? Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things that was happening in the 90s, um, obviously, um, when you started getting involved and I started getting to, in my in my professional career, I got to know a lot of people because I was all over these hospitals and people were saying, hey, aren't you a member of the association? I said, well, I'm a member of AHIMA, but I didn't even know that maybe there was a, a local association. Remember, at that time, there was no Facebook or anything like that. You heard it through word of right. mouth. And the meetings were held at different areas throughout you know, the county or at different hospital and things like that. And I says, okay, I'll, I'll join. And, um, and so when you join is, you got all of these, you start joining as a volunteer and committees. And I started joining, you know, programs and putting up meetings together, uh, coordinating things like that, um, bringing in um, how for education purposes as well. But there was a big thing going on during the 90s. And during that time, I remember 
that I already had sort of stepped into a, no, I was a coder, but a lot of times as a coder, I had to go around the hospital with this basket of medical records to (laughs) sign off on an attestation. So the doctor would sign the actual coding sheet, which I said, this is ridiculous. Who They don't care what code, it's all about coding. They don't know whether I coded something right or wrong. Yeah, I remember those days. I remember. I had to do that too. The doctor had to attest, had to attest that they agree. And I remember, this is ridiculous. And what was happening then is what? First of all, I felt like, you know, no pun intended, but I didn't go to college to be pushing a cart and and, and be trying to, to, to get these things. And although there were people that were doing it, the thing is that when the doctors, uh, I had good rapport with the doctors or the nurses would call me because I had a lot of network. This is Mario, Dr. So-and-so says, I'll be up. And I got everything done because it was important to get that done. If not, you could not bill. And if you can't bill a case, you did not have cash flow. So you could see your Mm -hmm. bill hold would increase. And it was based on, the semantics that they had to sign off on the attestation. So I paused there a minute because it it, it just angered me about the, the, the bureaucracy of what I called, and I'll be politically correct, Stacy, for your audience, this was a big <laughs> administrative burden. Yes. Something's got to happen. Well... Lo and behold, I went to a meeting and I raised the issue and I got elected to, well, you have a good, uh, so, so you get involved in this so that we could start making advocacy. I mean, we know Linda mm-hmm. Ryan, who was our advocacy queen for FHIMA, God yes. bless her. But mm-hmm. at that time, there was no, there was no advocacy group. There was nothing. So it was about writing letters and about getting involved in that and all of this with God. And at that time, the issues about getting involved with um, was the peer review organizations. These were individuals at each state that were reviewing the medical record. And if you build something without the attestation, mm-hmm. you would get your claims denied. So it was working through that organization. Finally, we were able to eventually supersede that and it was in 2001 that finally it came about and they took, uh, before that, it, 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 um, they decided to take it away about the attestations. But what it created was a great opportunity that we didn't know was going to happen. It created an area for clinical documentation improvement. And why was that? Mm -hmm. Because if you did not code correctly with the DRG, was just not putting any DRG, you would not get the right DRGs. So that was the precursor for that. And then eventually CMS, at that time, HICFA, the Healthcare Financial Administration said, okay, not a problem. We're going to take the administrative burden for the physician. But guess what? Somebody's going to have to take the responsibility. And who was that? All right, Big Mouth Mario and the HIM world. It's your responsibility now to make sure that that DRG is correct, right? So that became a great opportunity, unbeknownst to us, that that was going to impact on compliance, documentation. And then what was happening is that Basically, it was pretty much when all of that started happening about improving the documentation, about getting the diagnoses in the medical record to make sure to queries for that. I remember querying way beforehand, you go to the doctor and and ask for it, and they look at you and says, and I asked, you know, is this acute bout loss anemia? This was was back in the the late 80s already when all this was happening. They'd look at me and says, what medical school did you go to? And I'd explain to them what what I was doing. So what I'm trying to gather here is that, yes, it was an administrative burden to go up and uh, to have a physician sign off on something that was not non-clinical. But it gave HIM a a, a very, unbeknownst to us, a great power. 
the power of ensuring that that was the correct DRG based on the correct principal diagnosis and all the secondary diagnoses and the procedures, right? And so making sure that we ourselves were able to attest that that was correct. Because many times we all know that there are semantics to the coding process, right? So mm-hmm. that gave us a, a good opportunity to make sure that we were able to um we we I got involved in that, but then it, it it was part of a process to make sure that you know how in power in numbers um, you can enact change because if you sit back, you know somebody's going to make the decision for you. And so obviously with that that just snowball into getting more involved at the regional level. Um, I, I will tell you, Stacy. Be honest with you. I, I like. I was very much involved, always a program and arrangements because we used to have a lot of parties in South Florida. So mm-hmm. I enjoyed that. That was one of the perks. But the bigger right. perk was that we were able to do um, information. And and I remember back when I was in the association, we thought that ICD ten was going to come real soon, and I I was already in the mid nineties already doing. Um, lessons on ICD-10, the yes. root operation. I, I, can re, I can remember my first ICD-10 seminar I went to was in 1997. You were teaching ICD-10 in 1997. <laughs> yeah. and, and so we were advanced. We want to make sure that people were aware because at that time, and it's that right, because remember, we didn't have any network of internet. Everything, our, our newsletters mm-hmm. were mailed out. We thought it was really cool when I had a word processor and we were able to do that. I remember working with other regional presidents, um, Diane Evangelista uh, 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 during that time when she was SFHIMA. So networking and involving myself in that and getting involved in that. And then obviously is then um, as part of the regional association that gave me a door to meet people at what? FHIMA the Florida Health mm-hmm. Information Management Association. And then I would, you know, at that time you would go to Orlando and I was in awe because we had such a big house of delegates in Florida, always was very active yes. on that. So that gave me another learning opportunity to learn the dynamics of the politics of association, creating more leadership skills a lot in that perspective as well, so that I could also be able to, um, expand on that as well. And and obviously working yourself through uh, chair committees, uh, then director, being able to um, provide yourself the skill set to manage other people, work with other people, and then in FHIA being exposed to at the higher level of HIMA as well. So it created opportunity to be a participant but to be a not a passive participant of an active participant in perhaps initiations of making um, legislation or being able to promote legislation at either at the state level or at the national level to enact change as well. So that was my career path on that perspective um, in regards yeah. to the association work. And I am... Um, and I still value, that's a great value because it keeps you connected more so nowadays through uh, technology mm-hmm. to see what's going on also with the changes that transpire. Because a lot of things that happen politically within the health organizations could have direct or indirect impact on you as an individual. And legislation yes. happens. And one of the things that talking about, it's an offset because I like to connect the dots. People says, well, give me another example, Mario, how more legislation is happening. We talked about the HIM credentials. Most people, when they talk about coding, it's about what? Inpatient DRG coding. And there's so many other perspectives. You yourself, you are the guru, the queen, the goddess of of interventional radiology, (laughs) um, which is uh, so important. And it's a very difficult skill set to acquire. And you really have to learn it because of the complexity of the coding Mm -hmm. structure that is involved. Mind you, understanding the anatomical, pathophysiological of what you are coding in interpreting a medical record. A very important skill set. But what has happened in our country now? 
Last year, we talked about, and they coined a new term, the uh, greatest resignation, people resigning. A lot of baby boomers have decided, you know what? I'm done. You know, this pandemic has pretty put things into perspective. Or maybe they said, you know what? I'm going to take a hiatus and I'm going to learn something else to put me in another position that perhaps is not as stressful or something that maybe I should do. And Um, And I'll use myself as an example. Corporate world all my life, jet set all over the place. I knew eventually things would have to come to a stop or an end eventually. But what is happening is now that I see the baby boomers um, that are now retiring 10,000 a day. That's a lot of people going into the Medicare system. They're not electing traditional Medicare with the co-insurance amount. They're electing to go into managed Medicare programs. Mm -hmm. The biggest buzz that you see that I already saw two years ago, maybe three years ago in HIM was HCCs, the hierarchy condition category codes, right? So I've had some time in my hands and I said, this is interesting how the, how the juxtaposition, I said, how this is going to manage. Well, if you go now into a web, into your uh, Google and you look at these managed care associations, particularly here in South Florida, there's a plethora of them, particularly Mm -hmm. catering to the very elderly population Hispanic population a lot, you know, here in South. There are Hispanics in Miami, really. I didn't notice. (laughs) And and, and people and 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 a lot of these elderlies are in their eighties. They don't know anything about the 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 healthcare intricacies of what's going on. And people that are developing these entities, really good companies, need HIM people. Mm-hmm. I was I I could do my own study environmental scanning so I'm carving out another pathway and I'm putting feelers out because now there's a great need because of the HCCs to have because the hierarchy conditions are based on what the accuracy of the combination of ICD-10 codes mm-hmm. and they get paid based on the uh, risk adjusted factors of these patients in other words. Medicare says if they join your uh, your Advantage Medicare program, call it what you call it, X, Y, and Z, Medicare says we're going to pay you X amount of dollars for this patient and you take care of them. The whole idea is preventive health care to keep these people out of what? Right. The hospital mm-hmm. so that there's profit to the organization from a business perspective, but also keep what? Keep your patients healthy, Right. But one of the things that's important is to realize that if the codes are not accurate based on what clinical integrity of that documentation and the ICD-10s are not correct, you're not going to get paid for that patient. So for a doctor just to write diabetes, congestive heart failure and congestive heart failure and um, some other diagnoses doesn't cut it. Does that patient have systolic congestive heart failure? Does that patient have um, diabetic retinopathy or diabetic nephropathy? Those codes are very specific. So in the world of DRGs, it matters. But if you see the juxtaposition, people, what they want to do is avoid. Your inpatient rates have decreased from a medical perspective. We're not talking about COVID. So these right. countable characterizations are desperately, desperately looking for HIM people who know about this stuff. So that's another skill set that people are going to have to look at because as the population grows older and people selecting these, that's another skill set. So your traditional HIM of coding in the world of um, DRGs is not going to cut it particularly when we move to I-11. That concludes part one of my interview with Mario Perez. 
The next episode with Mario will feature a discussion on how artificial intelligence is transforming the world of CDI and how professionals need to prepare for the coming changes. As always, I want to thank all of my listeners. If you are loving the podcast and listen on Apple, please take a moment to give the podcast a five-star rating and leave a review. And of course, as always, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you have feedback you'd like to share in an episode or a topic suggestion, please send an email to podcast at radrx.com. That's podcast at radrx.com. Thanks again for tuning in and have an amazing week. Thank you for listening to Who Cares What Stacy Says. You can connect with Stacy on social media. You can find her business page for RadRx on Facebook, and you can connect with her personally on LinkedIn. Don't forget to check out the online training courses offered by RadRx. Cracking the IR code, mastering interventional radiology and cardiology online training, or cracking the diagnostic radiology code online training. Thanks again for tuning in to Who Cares What Stacy Says, a podcast providing insights and advice on how to take your medical coding career to the next level.